There is nothing wrong with large corporations. I think they can do some fantastic things for mountains. But we are a community mountain, and that's how I grew up, and it's how I want my kids to grow up, and it's how I want future generations to continue, is knowing Great Divide is this locally owned area. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, out to Montana today. First, I'm going to ask you for a favor. Please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. There you will find an article that accompanies this and every podcast, which provides loads of additional context on our conversation, among many, many other things. Look, the podcast is just a small part of the storm. The heart of this operation is the Storm Skiing Newsletter, where I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year. And you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing Newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter or X, I suppose. Instagram or Reds at Storm Ski Journal. Episode 142, Travis Crawford, co-owner, president, and general manager of Great Divide Montana. If you don't live in Montana and you've skied Montana, you've probably been to one of two places, Big Sky or Whitefish. Both amazing destinations, and they are destinations with fleets of high-speed lifts and basically endless terrain, but they are far from the only ski areas worth visiting in Montana. There are only 17 ski areas in the state, surprising perhaps for the fourth largest state in the country, but 11 of them give you 950 acres of terrain or more. These include 2,000-acre Bridger Bowl, 2,200-acre Discovery, 1,800-acre Lost Trail, 1,635-acre Red Lodge, and 1,600-acre Great Divide. Other than a trio of detachable lifts at Red Lodge, you won't find high-speed lifts at any of these ski areas. None are on the Epic or Icon Passes, and there's little to no on-site lodging at any of them. But you will find really, really good skiing on expansive, amazing terrain. And if you're not familiar with Montana skiing beyond the Big Two, Great Divide is an excellent place to start. It's easy to get to, just 8 miles off Interstate 15, and a peak day lift ticket for the 2022-23 to 23 ski season was just 64 bucks. And you have plenty of chances. Great Divide is typically the first ski area to open in Montana, and the last to close. Excluding, of course, the very unique Beartooth Basin summer ski area. What you'll find when you get to Great Divide is exactly what you would expect to find at a community bump run by a family that lives on the mountain. A hell of a good time. Sure, the mountain runs on five old riblet doubles and averages just 150 inches of snow per season. But the terrain is a riot, the atmosphere is welcoming, and the crowds are somewhere else. I stopped in last winter and I cannot wait to go back. Let's find out why. My guest today is the co-owner, president, and general manager of Great Divide Montana. Great Divide offers 127 trails on a 1,500-foot vertical drop across 1,500 acres of terrain, served by five chairlifts. 
In 2020, he purchased Great Divide along with his wife, Rose, and another couple, Shane and Betsy Moran. Travis Crawford is my guest. Travis, so good to connect. Welcome to the storm. How is life going in Montana this morning? Life is going great this morning. We have a little bit of overcast, so our temperatures are nice, and we have our crews out across the mountain doing all our summer maintenance. So glad to hear it. You know, you had a great winter season. It seemed like a great divide. Take us in here. How did the 2022 to 23 ski season go at Great Divide? It was a great season for us. We've seen several successive seasons here where each one we've seen increased numbers. And I think that we can attribute that to a couple of things, one of which is just our growth within our local community. You know, Montana is kind of the hot spot to be right now. And we're seeing a lot of new families move into the area and they're they're just jumping full on into skiing. And we're excited for that. You know, the NSAA reported record skier visits across the United States, up significantly, actually, from 2021 to 22 ski season. I'm not sure if you're public with your skier visit numbers at Great Divide, but how are your numbers looking uh, for this past season? So our numbers were another record year. So that's two years in a row of record visitation for us. Um, We're up significantly over our 2019 season, and we just continue to see this growth trend. So how much of that do you think is the population growth in Montana and how much is maybe folks looking for an alternative to some of the larger resorts? Because once you get out in Montana, there's a lot of big places, Snowball and Discovery and Red Lodge and Great Divide are just a few of them that aren't on the Epic or Icon passes, but they give you a nice big mountain to explore. But none of the crowds that go along with it. Are you starting to see some folks track down Great Divide maybe as a destination? Or do you attribute that growth mostly to your local population growth? Well, that's interesting. So most of it has been our local population growth. But we have started seeing some people travel from not really destination, but more from our Montana region. Um, We're seeing more and more families from the Bozeman area, Belgrade, Three Forks, moving their way over and visiting with us and we're seeing some people come down from great falls so we're definitely seeing kind of a a wide mix and to attribute those numbers i i think we're seeing multiple things you know we have our growth in our community which is fantastic we have some other areas that that we're seeing with some pricing differences and we're we love our middle-income families and our local families so we offer them some great options and then I think coming out of COVID, we we see a, an uptick in people just wanting to enjoy outdoor recreation. We're just seeing strong growth in that market right now where people just want to be outside. They want to spend time with their family. And we've seen a lot of that coming out of our, our pandemic. You know, one differentiator that I see for Great Divide, and I think this is really cool, is that Great Divide has long been Montana's late operator, right? Every region has that area. It's Snowbird in Utah, it's Mammoth in California, it's Killington in Vermont. In Montana, it's Great Divide. And you pushed the season to April 29th this past season, which was a few weeks after most of your competitors had closed. And there is Beartooth Basin, which is a summer only scary, and that's a whole different thing. But talk about that tradition of staying open late and pushing the season and why it's important for you culturally. Well, it's fun for us. So we have have a few reasons. We actually like to be the first to open in the state also. So we love being early to open and last to close. 
And that's something that the previous owners, Kevin and Nyla Taylor, started. And Kevin was a firm believer in it. And we love carrying that tradition on to where we're known across the state now that Great Divide will open up early and we will do our absolute best to be the last open in the state. And it, it, it's great. I mean, we serve as a community ski area and that's what we want to be here is especially our season pass holders. When we might see day tickets start to drop off a bit in the springtime, our season pass holders are still enjoying skiing and we want to, we want to be there for them and support that culture. Talk about what it takes to make that happen in particular, what it takes to open early because I imagine starting late October, you got to have a crew on standby for as soon as those temps get down low, they got to come out and make snow. What does it take to grab that title of first to open in Montana every single year? Yeah, so it's it's actually a lot of fun for us. At least I can say that. I'm not sure my crew <laughs> says it in the middle of everything. But we have a phenomenal team on our mountain crew. And what we do, so we're in general a lower snowfall ski area. So we do a lot of slope maintenance in the summer. We keep all of our grasses low. We run dozers and remove rock and really keep a low ground clearance. So when it comes to fall winter, we can open up with not as much coverage as other areas. So that's our first step. And then as soon as we start getting temperatures, we jump into snowmaking and we just, we explain it to our guys when we onboard them that from late October into mid January, it's, it's just a haul. I mean, you're, Anytime we've got temperatures, we've got water, we want to be making snow in that time period. And it, it's just a rush and it's a lot of hard work and we just go for it. You know, that really sets Great Divide apart as far as ski areas of your size in the West is that, as you mentioned, it's just a low snowfall ski area. The average per year is just 150 inches, which is less than they get in a lot of New England. Talk about how you supplement that with snowmaking and how 150 inches ends up being enough to have the longest season in Montana. I mean, Big Sky, by contrast, is claiming 400 inches a year. So that's a big difference for a competitor that's obviously much better capitalized. So how do you how do you supplement that natural snowfall and make that long season work? Yeah, so it, it, it starts with snowmaking. Our snowmaking system runs from the top of our good luck lift down on the lower mountain. We do have some plans for some upper mountain snowmaking and expand that, and we can chat about that later. But when we talk about slope maintenance and low snowfall, it really comes down to our summer activities. We have a rough terrain, all-terrain mower. We have a lot of crews that go out with brush cutters. As I said, we have the heavy equipment. So we work hard to really maintain our actual dirt slopes before that snow actually comes. That way we just don't need 400 inches to cover the rocks, to cover the debris. We work very hard to remove that from the get-go. What was your snowfall like this past season? So this year we actually were over average, which I think a lot of our areas were. We started off really strong, had kind of a dry late December into January and then as we started getting into February and on, winter really showed up for us. So we ended up with over 200 inches of snow by the time we were said and done. What did the base look like when you finally closed on April 29th? Did you have enough where you could have pushed it an extra weekend or was the, was the hill worn out at that point? Yeah, unfortunately, it was pretty worn out at that point. We've done May weekends in the past and we always love to. If we can do one operating day in May, that's just, it, it's a lot of fun and a big piece of pride for us. 
unfortunately this year we had seen a week of warm temperatures where that snow one weekend was fantastic and three days later it had pretty much melted out and we had a significant runoff. What was your footprint on that last day? Did you have the Belmont lift spinning? So yeah, we had Belmont spinning on the last day. We did our pond skim, which is always a fun event for just just a little bit of the mountain still being open. You know, our outer valleys were closed. We were consolidating in. We had a lot of people up here and it was just a fantastic party and everyone had a great day. Love it. So Great Divide, as I mentioned, you've owned it since 2020, but your roots go back quite a ways in the ski area. Did you grow up in the area? Did you grow up skiing Great Divide? So I did, actually. I grew up, my family ran and operated the Gates and Mountains Boat Tour Marina, which is north of Helena. So that's a summer operation, tourism-related service industry. And then in the winters, we'd come up skiing. And myself and my brother were the same age as Kevin and Nyla's daughters. So we all grew up kind of together as one big happy group. They'd come down in the summers and we'd spend the winters up at Great Divide and it worked really well. And then as I got older, I started working my way into Great Divide. Um, Started driving snowcats. I did some pro patrolling and then left for college and some of that stuff, came back for a few years as the operations manager. I was married at that point in time. We just had our our newborn daughter and we were just trying to figure out life. So left from the operations management position, still kept pretty close contact at Great Divide um, with Kevin and Nyla and obviously the girls and went out. I say I got a real job for a while Man, those real jobs, they'll really get you, but (laughs) (laughs) got some experience there and then just made my way back. So I want to linger on this for a moment. What was it like growing up at the ski area and just having your brother and the Naylor kids and just, because this is a, this is a big place and it's not a well-known ski area, but it is, it skis big. And if you look at the trail map, a lot of folks who haven't heard of it before will be astonished when they see this place. So what was that like just bombing around that mountain as a kid? It was, it was a lot of fun and they did tremendous job of developing this area. Kevin and Isla were just incredible in where they took the area while they took over ownership. And as a kid getting to see it develop, I, I remember I started skiing up here when I was five And it was really kind of the main mountain. Belmont was in place. Good Luck was in place. Meta Mountain was just being built. So we were really developing the front side. And then as I was growing up, Kevin was working on developing those outer valleys. So we got to explore Wild West before the lift was there. We cut in trails before the lift went in. And he did some snowcat skiing over there. And we got to explore and have fun with that. And then same on that rawhide side, we got to play over there and just watch this area develop over time as we were growing also, which was a pretty unique way. So when you grew up in a ski area, sometimes that's all you know. When was the first time you went out and saw other ski areas? And how did that make you appreciate this really local indie atmosphere that you have at Great Divide? Well, and that was another fun way that I grew up. And at the time, I'm sure I wouldn't have said it was fun because I would have rather grown up in town with neighbors next door and all that. But growing up at the marina during the winters, we were closed. So we actually did a lot of ski trips. Great Divide was always home, but we'd take a couple ski trips a winter. So 
pretty much from the time I was able to ski, we were exploring other areas, whether it was areas within Montana, you know, your Big Sky, your Discovery, your Whitefish, or going down to Idaho and Utah and really just exploring around. And then as we got older and kept involved with the ski hill, we would go down to Utah for the ski demos every year and explore kind of some industry sort of related events there and just kind of grew up through all that. So you have this really interesting context and, and you've been skiing elsewhere all your life. I can describe it as well as I can, but obviously you've been there your whole life. What makes Great Divide special? What sets this ski area apart? Because if you, know, if you look at the stats, okay, you don't have that much snow. You've got older lift fleet and you know it's kind of stuck up there in Montana. So, so what is it about this place that ultimately drew you back to it to build your career there? What and it, I mean, I obviously have spent a lot of time thinking about that and going, you know, what what sets this mountain apart? And I think what it comes back down to is culture. Is we we just have a fun culture here where new skiers can come up and they're family. I mean, I I'll be in the lodge emptying garbages, talking with people. Um, my wife Betsy Shane, all of us are active you know none of us are always back in an office and some hidden face so and that's the way kevin and nyla operated the mountain so right from the the very ownership down through the organization we're interacting with our guests we're getting to know them the vast majority or a, a significant portion of our season pass holders i know who they are which is a, a really neat community that we can build here and it, it just creates this fun culture of you go up the Great Divide and it feels like home. We're going to provide you some fantastic terrain, but it's going to it's just going to feel like home. It's not intimidating. We carry that on with our new skiers. We work extremely hard to ease the burden of entry into the sport. We know it can be a scary sport to start, but right from the very get-go, if you've never skied before, you can come up here visit with our staff and customer service in the ticket office there. They'll answer all your questions. They'll get you every piece of equipment you could need to enjoy a sport. And they, they'll help remove that fear. So right from your very first day, you're kind of joining in that culture and finding that laid back atmosphere and just enjoying a, a fun Montana sport. Yeah. I mean, you really can feel that. And on the day I visited, I, I believe it was Betsy handing me my lift ticket in the lodge and that wasn't a setup. She was just working there. And I think you were up tinkering around with snow cats. So it seems as though you're very hands-on. So let's, let's talk about how you got there. I mean, it's one thing to grow up at a ski area and enjoy it and kind of feel like you own the place. It's a whole other thing to run it. So in 2020, you purchased the ski area from the nailers along with your wife and the Morans, Shane and Betsy Moran. So talk about that opportunity how it came up that the nailers wanted to to sell the ski area and why you ended up pursuing it. Yeah, and and that was an interesting and it was a, a very long process. So back in 2010-2011 when I was up here as operations manager, we had very first started talking about purchasing the area. And at that time, as I said, I had a newborn daughter my wife was freshly a CPA. Um, we were still kind of figuring life out, and it just wasn't the right time for us. 
And I also don't think it was quite the right time for Kevin and Nyla. You know, they were finally starting to put those plans in place as to what their next steps would be and what they wanted. But I just, it wasn't the right time. So we all stayed close and continued on. And then over the next decade, Kevin got more and more serious about actually selling the area. We stayed in close contact, talked through a bunch of different scenarios with him. I remained doing random projects, controls related, lift related with him. So we stayed close. And then as the thought of selling the area got more serious, they were more committed into it. We started to, to try to figure out a plan that would keep Great Divide locally owned. There is nothing wrong with large corporations. I think they can do some fantastic things for mountains. But we are a community mountain and that's how I grew up and it's how I want my kids to grow up. And it's how I want future generations to continue is knowing great divide is this locally owned area. And that's the way we wanted to keep it kept. I mean, we wanted to keep it small in a way while growing to match our ongoing needs, but really keep that feel and culture. And the only way we could figure to do that was to keep it locally owned. So there were a couple different options out there. One was kind of a community ownership approach, and Kevin spent a while exploring that and just never really found the right fit as to how that was going to be moved forward. He had another couple offers out there, and they just weren't what everyone was looking for. And we got together with Betsy and Shane and started talking with Kevin and Nyla and came up with a plan to to transition ownership and make this happen. By January 2020, that's when we transferred shares and took over ownership. Was there interest from Vail or Altera or Boeing or any of these bigger companies? You know, not that I know of, not that I was ever told, but I also don't know if Kevin would have entertained those options in any way, shape or form either. I mean, he, he was very committed to seeing this mountain through as it was really his legacy. I mean, they purchased the mountain in 1985 from the Belmont Ski Club. And at that point, I mean, it, it was a very small mountain and he built it to what it is today. And I will give those guys all the credit in the world. I, I don't think I could do what they did. It's, it's flat incredible. And as part of his legacy, I don't think he wanted to see it going to a, a Vale or a Boyne or something like that. Talk a little bit more about that legacy, Travis. I mean, obviously you said they built out the Wild West area and established it as a really consistent late and early operator. But as far as establishing it as a business and establishing it as a sort of local institution, talk a little bit about the work that they did to really make Great Divide what it is today, the cultural presence it is today. Oh, it's just incredible the work that they put in to make it what it is today when they purchased the ski area there was not a chairlift there was a rope toe and a t-bar so in 1985 they scraped together from what i understand almost every single penny they had (laughs) and were able to put in the belmont chairlift then the good luck lift went in in 1988 and it kind of started going from there but on a financial sense Kevin has a master's degree in finance. He has an accounting background and he was incredibly adept at being able to understand needs and really 
see where this mountain could go and execute that plan. I often say I have the easy job now. I mean, we have this fantastic infrastructure, we have a beautiful mountain, and we have a community that's grown in size. So we're at a very sustainable place right now that we get to do all the fun projects that that would have taken them a tremendous amount of work to do. So that that legacy is just incredible. So you grew up at the ski area. You obviously have a great appreciation for what the Nailers did. What sort of, I don't want to say pressure, but like what sort of sense of responsibility do you feel, Travis, as the owner, as, and you're, you're a young guy. I mean, you're going to have this place for a long, long time. What sort of responsibility, sense of responsibility do you feel to just not mess it up? Not only do you keep improving it, but just to, to, to make sure that you don't screw up the legacy they made. Not that I think you will. <laughs> well, I certainly hope I don't. <laughs> um, it, it's big. And whenever we onboard new employees, that's one of the big discussions we have is Montana continues to grow. We continue to grow and evolve. Oftentimes that means more policies, more procedures, more on the risk management side. And it's a very calculated approach as to how we can continue to evolve while maintaining that small ski area culture. And I take it very seriously on my responsibility that from the top down, we, we want to be what the community needs. We want to stay up with needs. We want to grow, but we can't forget where we came from and what those roots were that makes Great Divide special. So tell us about that community. You mentioned Helena. It's just 20 miles away or whatever. And I'd imagine that that's your primary community you serve. But talk about the local communities and what the relationship is like between Great Divide and them. Particularly, I'm interested in in the focus on youth and families and, and how you're able to cultivate this culture of skiing in that part of Montana. Yeah. Um, so our largest community is Helena. That's where the vast majority of our skiers come from. And then we see our outliers from the Bozeman area, Butte, Missoula, Great Falls, and then a little bit beyond. Um, Family is a major, a major focus for us. And some of this could be, I now have two kids of my own that I'm watching grow up and learn to ski. So I'm, I'm very focused on family, but I also understand where Great Divide is, you know, We're not going to ever be a giant resort. We're not your Whistler. We're not your Big Sky. We're not these giant areas. We are a community ski area. And while we continue to grow, that's always going to be our focus. So we want to make sure to pay attention to that and keep us there for that that demographic is I don't I don't want to be the the hardcore you know, vacation skier that comes for a one week stay and is looking for that environment. I want to be here for those families in our local area that are looking to come every weekend and enjoy a sport that they can all evolve with, grow with, and have a lifelong activity. So that's a a huge focus for us. How much fun is that to bring your kids up at a ski area and just let them loose to rip around? I mean, are they at the point where they can ride the Belmont lift or wild west by themselves and just cruise around because they know everyone on the mountain or are they not quite there yet? I mean, how, just talk about that whole dynamic. Yeah. So they are there now and it's been so fun to watch. So my daughter actually turned 12 today. Today's her birthday. Oh, wow. which is a lot oh, of happy fun. birthday. <laughs> my son's eight. And just watching them evolve as little skiers is just incredible. My daughter's at the age, she spends a lot of time, she'll 
help in the kitchen and she's just around all the time. She still spends a lot of time skiing. She goes out with all mountain program. And then my son, he'll just get up on a Saturday, walk down to the lodge, put on his equipment and just go skiing. Like he just <laughs> loves the sport and he's getting that independent streak now. And he just goes, he keeps the phone with him. Almost everyone up here knows him. And every once in a while, you know, he'll find a friend or someone he knows and hop on with them. Otherwise, he's just kind of ripping on his own, which is, it's just been a, a great experience to watch. That is unbelievable. And you all live right up there on the mountain? Yes, we do. Yep. Oh, that's got to be so fun. So let's talk about your co-owners here, your wife, Rose, and the Morans. Just talk about the four of you as a group. And it's not unusual for folks to form these coalitions to buy a scary. Obviously, it's a big purchase and and you need not only different sources of capital, but you need different talents. So talk about the four of you and what each of you bring from a skills and experience point of view and how you divide that up so that each of you is playing a role to run the mountain. Yeah, and that's what's neat among the four of us is we all have different skills and talents. As I said, my wife is a CPA. She's a very talented accountant, way better with numbers than I will ever be. Mm-hmm. And she also oversees kind of our lodge and food and beverage operations. Betsy has a obviously a lifetime experience up here growing up on the mountain as a daughter of Kevin. She's spent most of her time down in ticket sales and customer service, and she is incredible at that. If you ever have a question about a lesson or where to ski or what's going on, she's either on the phone, responding to emails, or just talking to in person. And then Shane, he comes from a rodeo ranching background. So he spends a lot of time back with our mountain crew, and he's one of our co-mountain managers there that... He's the guy behind the scenes working on equipment and grooming and making snow and just making sure that this area is ready to operate. So we all have these little niches that really complement each other and help fill those voids. So it sounds like you're a really good team and we're really well equipped. And it sounds like you went through a very methodical process with the nailers to make sure, okay, this is, this is the right purchase and we're the right people to buy it. You close in January 2020. And two months later, we all know what happened. Everything shuts down across the country, including the ski industry. And you've got to be like, are you freaking kidding me? I mean, did you have any buyer's remorse when the COVID <laughs> shutdowns happened? Were you like, ah, oh, maybe I should, <laughs> should have been working for someone else? Just take us through that, how you responded and how you ultimately got through it. Well, that, that was a fun one. I don't know if buyer's remorse is a word, all the emotions definitely went okay. through all of the emotions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was definitely not part of our plan. You know, everything was going mm-hmm. strong. The weekend we closed was actually our best snow weekend of the year. We had just had this huge powder dump, had an incredible day. And by about five o'clock that night, we were in a position where the state was going to be starting to close operation or close businesses. And we wanted to preemptively be there for our community. I'd I'd rather be on the forefront and making decisions ourselves as opposed to someone from the state or the health department saying, hey, you're done. So we put out a notice and basically said, you know, we're we're closed at this point in time and we don't know what the future is going to hold. And we sent everyone home and we just kind of sat back and 
worked very hard with our local health department. They were a phenomenal resource for us. Luckily, a bunch of their staff ski with us. So I think that always helps that mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> when they have an interest in getting us back open that following winter. So through the summer, you know, we worked through our resources with the National Ski Area Association. We have a great Montana Ski Area Association that we are all, we talk to other areas quite frequently and we're all a resource to each other. And then worked with our local health department in the state to come up with a plan as to how we were safely going to be able to operate. The good thing was, is our big focus was on skiing. And this was a time to refocus away from food and beverage and refocus away from kind of some of these indoor events that we had going on and bring that focus back to the core of our business, which is skiing. And that was our messaging going, you know what, you're going to be outside you're going to be ideally away from people. I mean, there should be a certain amount of social distancing involved when you ski. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and we were able to have a, a safe operation for our guests and staff and got open that next fall on schedule and we were able to move forward. But there was definitely some uncertainty there that it was it was interesting. Do you think in some ways it was a benefit that you were coming in I guess you weren't coming in new because you'd worked at the Sierra for a long time, obviously very familiar with it, but you weren't stuck in your ways, right? And everything was going to be new for you because you had to start to really acclimate to this position as owners. I mean, in some ways, was it easier that it happened then than if it would have happened now? Or was it just, was it going to be a big pain no matter what? I, I think it absolutely was easier is we were still onboarding basically any changes that we wanted to make on the back end. So we were already looking at implementing some electronic systems that weren't online. We were redoing our policies and procedures kind of across the mountain to fit our management style and our vision. And that was a, a great time to be able to just continue that going, okay, well, we're going to go to electronic incident forms. We're going to go to some electronic rental systems. We're going to implement some policies and procedures that we were looking at anyways. And as long as we were going through all this, it, it really worked out well on that side. So you got through it and I imagine you learned a lot at the same time, whatever it is you thought you were going to do with the ski area, all that had to be put on hold. So as you look at Great Divide, obviously you took over a really good situation. You took over a really well-functioning ski area with some great owners. As you and your co-owners consider your own legacies and your own long-term vision for Great Divide, what are the opportunities here, Travis? What could work better at Great Divide? What could Great Divide become? So, and that's really going back to that, filling the needs of our, of our local community and being there to accommodate the growth. So as we continue seeing Helena grow, we see the effects of climate change and some more variable winters. We want to be sustainable and remain, remain viable through all of that. So we have a few different projects going on and long-term visions, one of which is summer operations. We want to get some downhill mountain biking going across the mountain. Helena is a large mountain biking community. We're actually an IMBA silver certified community which I think is one of 11 communities that are at the silver level. We want to work to bring that possibly up to a gold level. So we brought IMBA in two years ago now to do a 
initial study and a concept for what our biking could be that so that our trail system would complement the Helena trail system. And I think we came up with some neat options there. So we're moving forward with those plans. And along with that would bring some summer hiking, possibly some music events, and just really make Great Divide kind of that summer hub of stuff going on. And then on the winter side, it's just continuing that growth. So right now, our biggest limiting factor is parking. So we're working with our land partners, including the Bureau of Land Management, as to what we can do to expand our parking lots. Ideally, we can build a new road and put in a very large lot a little bit higher on the mountain. We have some other options for some shuttles, too, and we're going through those. And then a lot of it is focusing back on that core of skiing. So looking at our lifts and what those needs are. Kevin's done a phenomenal job of lift maintenance, which I would hope that we've continued on. Last season, you know, we had a a couple stops on our Wild West lift that were longer than we would like. So this summer, we're doing a complete repower of the Wild West lift, converting it to a diesel generator with an electric motor instead of a diesel direct drive and updating our entire control system. It looks like we're going to be putting a new haul rope on our Meadow Mountain chairlift. We're continuing these large-scale improvements, and then we're really looking at our Belmont lift right now as to what an upgrade of that lift would be and just try to just continue filling the needs of our community and matching our level of growth. So the theme there is a more modern ski area, keep making incremental improvements, to make sure that you secure the long-term future of the mountain. Is that fair? That's, yep, that's exactly. Is we just want to continue being viable and just keep meet, meeting those needs. You know, I, I want to get into each. There's so much in there, Travis, and there, there's so many exciting projects you just mentioned. I do want to linger a little bit on this MTB piece, and I don't typically talk about summer stuff on this podcast. I'm very skiing focused. However, the interesting part about your ambitions for mountain biking to me is that you run all riblet doubles. And there's certainly mountain bike parks in the country that run fixed grip lifts. I'm sure there's some riblet doubles somewhere. Maybe there aren't. But talk about how you're imagining retrofitting those riblet doubles, which are beautiful lifts, but, but not really made for mountain biking. What's your thinking around how you're going to retrofit those to handle bikes? Yeah, so that riblet center pole design is very interesting for bikes for numerous reasons, and we don't need to get very technical on that. But we have a couple different ideas. So one of which was almost 20 years ago, we did mountain biking up here. It was more cross-country trails, a little bit of lift served, and that more traditional as opposed to the modern bike park design. But what they did was just hangers, for the wheels. So on that center post, there was a hanger that came off and you'd vertically support the bike off that hanger. That's an option. It's a very simple, easy to implement option. The downside is, is now we have a, a piece of the lift contacting wheels and we start seeing more and more carbon fiber wheels and people being pretty touchy about that. We're a little bit leery about continuing that hanger design. So one of our co-mountain managers is actually a mechanical engineer, which helps us out a lot. And we're working on a design to have kind of a bike carrier where we take the basket off the chair and leave that center post hanger and have a retrofit actual bike roll-on carrier that would fit there. We have a couple designs 
kind of prototyped up that we're testing in-house to make sure that they'll work. But that's the way that we're looking to lean on. As we've seen riblet lifts decommissioned across the West, there's got to be a surplus of chairs out there. Have you been able to scoop up some extra chairs to maybe experiment on? We do have some extra chairs. At this point in time, we actually have two riblet lifts worth of spare parts. Uh, right before we took ownership, Kevin had plans to install a couple new lifts up here that we've put on hold and kind of reevaluated those plans. But we do have all the components for it, so we're able to do some of those those changes and have that back stock. That's exciting. Uh, where did those riblet lifts come from, and where was Kevin planning to put them on the mountain? So I, those lifts were actually a conglomeration of a few different areas. I believe we had some parts out of Schweitzer. Some stuff had been purchased by Teton and then moved back down. We have some Bridger parts. But there's been, as, as riblets continue to be decommissioned and reinstalled, and now we're on some of the third iterations of these lifts, we're really seeing a spread of parts now. As far as installing, one of the lifts was designed to parallel our Belmont lift, kind of at the bottom of our bowl area. So it would be just below our good luck lift if you'd ski down there, and then you could hop that and end up back up at the summit right along the Belmont lift. And then the other ones planned out past our rawhide lift. We have some expansion grain there that was logged a couple seasons ago, and that would transfer you up towards that ridge line. That one we're still looking at and figuring out the logistics of it. It's some phenomenal glade skiing out there that we're really excited for. It's a long ways out there at that point. So we're trying to figure out how to effectively get our customers to that area that they're not having to run a cat track for half an hour just to ski that. So we're working on that. And then that parallel lift, we've put that plan on hold and that's just kind of a an operational difference. With current trends and what I'm seeing, We'd rather put the finance, put the resources into upgrading our Belmont lift as opposed to installing a redundant lift that most likely would only operate on our busiest weekends. God, there's there's so much in there. Again, you know, there's old Great Divide trail maps where a lift would have run from around the junction of Last Hope and Redtail up Rawhide, kind of landing around top of 4th of July. Whatever happened to those plans, is that still a line that you consider so folks could lap the terrain over there? So that is something that we're considering. It got put on hold. I mean, we're, we're going back quite a few years now yeah. because of wind exposure. And that is one of the downfalls with our riblet carriers is they're light and they're very susceptible to wind. So when you're running on those exposed ridge lines, we were, con or Kevin was concerned that there'd be a lot of wind holds on that lift. So we're still looking to see what we can do there. Ideally, I would love to have an option to bring more skiers either back up into that ridge line or bring them all the way back to the summit and kind of make that summit a centralized location. And when those plans were drawn up, this, this was a map from the mid 80s that I found. Again, it would have loaded near Redtail and Last Hope, but you've opened that bit below Redtail. In the meantime, are there plans or have you considered a lift that would go all the way from the bottom of Lower Big Open where Rawhide loads all the way to the top of Rawhide Peak? Yep. And that's exactly what that would be is basically removing our existing Rawhide lift and turning that uphill and reinstalling it with a lift with that vertical then. 
And the other lift that you referred to that would have been over in Rawhide Gulch that would have gone over to expansion terrain. So I'm I'm assuming this expansion terrain then is lookers left of the current map. So skiers right coming down Rawhide Ridge. What was the line on that that you were thinking about? Was that loading down in Lower Big Open? Was it loading along Redtail? And, and where would it would it have terminated? So it actually loads beyond where our map shows. Um, mm -hmm. When you're driving up mm -hmm. to the ski area, there's a snowmobile parking area, and it loads very close to that. So it's significantly lower than our existing terrain. And then it would take you up on the map very close to the high voltage ridge line that shows there. We do have a large high voltage power line that runs through that area. So we'd have some logistical issues with going over or under that line. So most likely that would load from very low, take you to that ridge line, and then you would ski that back down to the current Rawhide loading terminal and then be able to take that back up to the summit or up to Rawhide Peak. And where is the expansion terrain? Is that the stuff that you see on the trail map to the skiers right at high voltage, or is that over that ridge, lookers left on the map, which is what's wilderness now on the trail map? It's really what's over in that wilderness area. It is some of that stuff, lookers left to high voltage. There is a face there, but then it rounds that ridge line, and it's several hundred acres of terrain over there that's just some really fun rolling glades that is, is terrain that we really don't have on this mountain. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. It, what kind of vertical drop will we be talking about for that expansion? So it's about 400 additional vertical beyond where we're at currently. So not a tremendous amount more on the vertical side because it's that lower angle, what I'd attribute to just intermediate terrain. That, that's really exciting. I mean, that would take you from 1500 up to close to 2000. And that's, that's the big leagues. You know, I'm curious here as I'm, as I'm looking at this, it doesn't appear as though Great Divide is on Forest Service land. Is this private land? Do you own this? What's the land ownership situation, both at the ski area and around you? Yeah, so we have a mix of private land. We own a little bit, and then we lease a lot of it. And then we also primarily on Bureau of Land Management, on BLM okay. land, which mm. gives us some additional flexibility over our over our other areas that are on a Forest Service permit. What does that process look like? Because I, I talk to a lot of operators who operate on U.S. Forest Service land, and obviously that's the norm for large ski areas in the West, and they have to submit a master plan every decade or so. And the forest service has to accept that. And each time they want to build a new lift, they have to go through a whole approval process. What is the, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with the bureaucratic niceties of all that, but talk about working with the Bureau of Land Management and how that might differ from the U.S. Forest Service as far as what you, as far as what you know. Yeah. And it, it really comes out to a fundamental difference of how we are licensed. So where our Forest Service counterparts have a special use permit, we have a commercial land lease. So we are technically leasing land, and the way it's written in our contract is we're leasing land for any legal commercial activity. So that gives us a tremendous amount of leeway into what we do and how we operate it. BLM loves the ability to multi-use the land. So we have public access, we have our commercial operation, we also have cattle grazing up here. So we're seeing this public land used by multiple groups, and that really fits in their mission statement. And then on the permitting side, 
we have the normal public lands permitting processes where if we're looking to conduct logging, we need to go through their standard steps of approval and a timber sale and all that. If we're looking to move extreme amounts of dirt, then we need to go through some sort of an environmental analysis to ensure that we're taking care of public lands and not creating erosion concerns or environmental hazards. But overall, it gives us much more latitude and leeway than what we see out of a special operating permit. How about if you want to build a lift? So if we build a lift that goes through that same kind of environmental review, where instead of submitting this long-term master plan, we go more project-based with them. And it, it is a, a fairly lengthy process. Some of our lifts are already approved under that lease. But that's what they're concerned with is, are we creating any environmental concerns? And if we're not, generally they're pretty okay with adding it into our lease and letting us move forward with the process. So how a forest service lease will generally work is a ski area will have a permit area. And often the permit area is larger than the ski area itself. So an example would be Winter Park in Colorado, which has a whole peak that they could develop, but they just haven't done so yet. Does your agreement with the Bureau of Land Management work in the same way? In other words, you were talking about that expansion. Do you have a a permit area that expands beyond the ski area borders? Or when you want to make an expansion, do you say, okay, hey, this is what we're thinking. Here's what we'd like to do and handle it project by project. So our lease area actually does lease beyond our boundaries. And we have included that expansion terrain out in the Rawhide Gulch in that leased land. So we technically already do have lease of that that we're just not actively using at this point in time. And then if we need to add more additional land into that lease, that would be an addendum to our existing paperwork. Is the only land that you have right now that lookers left of the trail map? Do you have anything lookers right or or on the backside? There's a little bit there, not very much to develop. That's just kind of how land boundaries worked. So most opposite or most often we leased full sections of land instead of creating uh, boundaries, kind of like you'd see with the Forest Service. Is since it's a land lease, we just lease the sections and go from there. Um, when we start talking our Wild West area, we've leased almost all of the BLM land and then any potential expansion terrain, it's most likely on private land. They, we've also leased out that most of that's from a local ranch and they're pretty amenable to doing what they need to do and what we can do to utilize that land in a, in a positive manner. And if we need to lease more, that's always an option for us. All right, let's go back to the Belmont lift here, Travis. You got my attention. Obviously, that's your workhorse. That's your big out of base, based summit lift. It's a riblet double like all the lifts on your mountain. And you said that you'd be interested in upgrading that lift. What do you have in mind long term? What would you like to see in place of the Belmont lift? That is a very interesting question. Um, Ideally, I'd like to keep it a fixed grip with our Current area, our snowfall, I don't think we warrant a detachable lift. I'd be concerned about snow quality at that point. But what I would be interested in is looking at a fixed grip quad. I think that that's, as we talk more, what our goal is with being here for families. I think families are coming to expect being able to sit together, a traditional family of four, and our doubles don't quite meet that. 
So when we start looking at a, a fixed grip quad, I think we start to modernize and really meet the needs of our local community and what they're looking for us and what they're expecting us to be able to provide. Are you in a position where you're looking at new lifts, maybe a nice new sky track, or would you be looking at a mountain that's maybe retiring a lift and putting a used lift there? I would personally always love a used lift. Uh, it just frees up more financial resources to continue our projects. We're constantly working on the area. Since we've taken over ownership, we've built a new Mid-Mountain Lodge. We've built an entire new maintenance facility. This year, we're working on a new patrol clinic along with our biking plans and other projects. So if we take a, a very large financial investment, like a new SkyTrack or bike lift, I'd be concerned of the financial resources that that would place on us and would delay some of our other I'd say mid-sized projects where if we could find a used lift that was obviously well-maintained and able to be relocated, I think that that would give us more freedom moving forward to continue our other projects. So if you do get to that place where you're looking to upgrade Belmont, would you keep it on the same line? There's a couple interesting questions here. First is that your base area is pretty congested. You have a lot happening in that small area. So do you like where it loads now or would you want to move that? And the second piece of that is the lift doesn't quite go to the top of Mount Belmont. I imagine there's a, a wind concern there. But as you imagine a next generation Belmont lift, have you thought much about where you would like to place it or do you like the current line? So our bottom terminal would be very close to where it is now. We'd probably move it a little bit, but overall it'd be in that same general location. The top terminal, we would move uphill about another 100 to 150 feet. Hmm. It would still be tucked down from those towers, still protected by some trees around it, but that would allow a much better line to get out to our outer valleys without nearly as much pushing as currently done. So maybe land near the top of Huff and Puff? Yeah, yep, right in that area. There's actually a decked out area that we created when Kevin was moving forward with that parallel lift. So how about the Wild West lift? This is almost the same. Well, it's a little longer actually than, than Belmont. Not that old of a lift as far as when it moved to Great Divide in 2001. I thought it was a really fun machine. Really, I really love those classic riblets. But as you think long-term, are you pretty happy with Wild West? Would you like to see maybe a triple chair over there? Or is that one good for now? For the time being, I'm happy with that being a double. As I said, we are doing a, a very significant modification of it this year, and I'm really excited to see the outcome of it. Currently, that's a diesel drive lift that it's designed at 500 feet a minute. And due to the, the age of that diesel drive, we had been running it significantly under 500. So by converting it to a modern electric. Um, it'll actually be an AC motor with variable frequency drive and then a genset powering all of it. It's going to give us that ability to run at 500 or very close to depending on chair swing and all those variables. And I'm excited to see what that does when we see those great powder days. And we've seen some lines there in the past. I'm hoping that additional line speed will help solve that issue. What we have looked at is possibly adding a second small lift somewhere off the top of or the unload terminal of Wild West that would transfer you back to the summit area. 
And then that way you wouldn't have to take that Northwest Passage Trail all the way back out. You'd just be able to hop this small little transfer lift and then be accessing our main mountain again. Well, that, that's a, that would be a really cool upgrade. Is there anywhere else on the mountain, other than obviously we've talked about Rawhide, anywhere else where you've considered adding a redundant lift or maybe just a service lift to get people out of certain places? So that would be the biggest one is that Wild West area over there is trying to bring it back to a more traditional mountain design where our lifts feed back to the summit. We have a lot of roads right now, whether it's Redtail Trail or Northwest Passage, those catch roads that bring you all the way back out, where I think as we continue to grow, it'd be better to gain some redundancy in those transfer lifts. That way, for example, if we had the transfer lift on Wild West, if we had a mechanical issue on Belmont, we would still be able to access the entire mountain where our customers could ride good luck up, ski into West, and then take West up and that transfer lift and access everything else while we worked on it. So the way your lifts are situated now, you have a really cool progression. You have that Meadow Mountain beginner lift, and then you have the longer good luck lift, and then you have Belmont. Thinking long-term, are you pretty happy with the way that those progress? Have you considered, you know, maybe good luck becomes a quad with a mid station and you take out Meadow Mountain, so you have one fewer lift? Are are things like that in the future? What's your thinking around your beginner lifts? We really like Meadow Mountain. It's great to have that as kind of an isolated beginner lift. We're also seeing a lot of our freestyle terrain park users use utilize that lift because it's just a little three and a half minute ride and they can access most of our terrain parks without that upper wildwood and rodeo area. So we're seeing a lot of lapping there. Good luck is a fantastic intermediate lift. So that's our race team uses it. A lot of our beginner moving into intermediate families use that lift. So there is a potential in the future that we'll see that upgraded to something with higher capacity. And then we've also, as part of our longer term vision, when we re-envision the base area with a different lodge and different layout, there's a potential that there's a small beginner lift that would run out of what's the current backyard area up towards Boomerang. And we could recontour some land that would just be strictly beginner terrain at that point. As you think about this demo that you want to serve of families, have you considered a carpet or or do you like rope toes for beginners to kind of give them that challenge element? What's your thought about maybe putting a carpet in there somewhere? We are actively looking at this point in time for a relocatable carpet. Going back to that same, I, I prefer not to put in a new one just due to financial strain and resources. But I think we're at the point where our new skiers are expecting carpets. We love the rope toe. It's simple. I personally believe it creates better skiers because it it just forces you into that. But it's definitely not where we're seeing trends going. And and I think within the next couple of seasons, you'll see that replaced with a carpet. So tell us a little bit here, Travis, about the rawhide lift. This is a super cool machine. It's more of what I would call a horizontal lift. It transfers folks out of the rawhide basin back to the resort proper. Tell us what you can about the history of that lift. Just lay this out for the listeners who may not be familiar with this very cool machine. Yeah, so Rawhide Lift is it, it is just a very unique little lift over there. And that came out when Kevin was developing that area and his original plans had a lift going all the way up to the summit. And he started to have concerns about wind and they started looking at other lines and other options. 
and they started looking at the profile as to where it sits now and found out that it has under 300 feet of vertical gain all the way across. So it is a very flat lift. It does have a couple of valleys that it goes over that create some high spans. But overall, it allowed him to install a lift that only has a 40 horsepower motor in it. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's just That's crazy. crazy. Yeah, there's no elevation gain. So it it's just a people mover at that point in time. So all of a sudden, he went from a large lift that was going to be 18, 20 towers long, 150, 200 horse, large braking systems due to the elevation, all those issues that a, a normal chairlift has, to this horizontal lift that has no rollback concerns, has a 40 horse electric motor. When we load test it, it doesn't roll back and cannot roll back. So there's not a service break on it. There's just the emergency and the rollback brakes that are required by code. So it just all of a sudden changed this very simple lift that he was able to install. And what's nice with simple lifts is there's just less concern of things going wrong with them. So you mentioned that the rawhide lift goes over a couple of high places. I thought this was really unique in your center pole riblets. For Rawhide and Wild West, you actually have a little safety bar that drops down from the center pole. And most of these old riblets just don't have safety bars. Talk about that design and and how you were able to come up with that. And then I'm curious if you plan to add that to your lifts that don't currently have it. Yeah, it, it's actually a neat design and it is a riblet design. Um, hmm. I do okay. not know the exact date when they started. It, I know it was one of their later generations. But it, it's just simple. I, it's a hinged bar that comes off that center pole, has a little spring mechanism in it, and it, it provides that, that comfort bar, that relief that you don't generally get out of a riblet. Our Wild West and Rawhide lifts are 100% covered by it. Belmont, we have at about 50% coverage right now. And we're working on acquiring more. We always want to make sure that we're compliant with all of our codes. So we need to follow what is an engineered drawing or an engineered manufacturing process. So we can't just start building these and copycat them without being very sure of what we're doing. So we're working on that manufacturing right now to continue that. But they're just so simple and they work well. And we, for a riblet design, it's pretty neat. How about your beginner lifts? Do you have the bars on those? I, I didn't get a chance to ride either of them. No, the beginner lifts do not. So the good luck lift is a center pole, just like the rest of ours. And then the meta mountain lift is an outside bale. So more of a traditional double chair design that you'd see with other manufacturers. And that's one that we'd love to get some bars over. The nice thing with meadow is even though it's a beginner lift, there's no ski under access because of how we kept it close to the ground. That one just does not have much of a rise to it above snow level, uh, runs at 400 feet a minute, and is designed solely for that beginner rider. So for the time being, it's a, a safe ride and feels comfortable and secure while you're on it. So let's talk about your terrain here a little bit, Travis. This is, I just thought it was a really fun mountain. It's, it's a lot of free skiing. It's just a lot of trees, a lot of really creative, interesting paths you can take 
through the mountains. The official total of trails is 127. There's not anywhere near that many on the trail map. Just talk a little bit about how the mountain skis and ultimately how you decided to build the trail map without necessarily putting every single run on it. And that's been kind of a consolidation we've done in the last couple of years. Um, in the early 2000s, we had, well, over 127 trails. They were spread across this mountain, interconnected, and it was a really neat design. And then we had the pine beetles move in. Mm, okay. <laughs> and for close to a decade, we did a tremendous amount of timber work trying to mitigate pine beetles. Kevin spent well over a million dollars of his own financial money in addition to BLM, in addition to other resources, just trying to combat pine beetles. And that ended up removing a lot of timber across this mountain. So now instead of traditionally cut runs where we have trees in between them, now we've gone to that glade design where one run kind of flows naturally into another without seeing a significant break. So that's what we're seeing on our trail map now is reflecting how it's skiing. And while we are losing some run names, it matches more what you'd see on the snow going, okay, this trail actually is a continuation of this one at this point without a clear delineation. How is that pine beetle infestation now? Is it under control locally? Is it still something you're fighting? So we are clear of pine beetles across this mountain. We're happy to say that. We do have some other insects that move in, and and that's a constant thing with trees, whether it's a spruce budworm or there's a couple other beetles in the area. And we do treatment to just try to keep our healthy forests. When we get stands with any sort of beetle activity, we very aggressively take care of that stand of trees before we can see that blow up of multiple trees and multiple areas and that exponential growth. So there is one benefit I would imagine here. How much has all that tree work and tree removal done to help fortify Great Divide against a potential fire? A a tremendous amount. I mean, it would equate to a very large fuels reduction project is across this entire mountain. We don't have those very dense fuel loads anymore. And then kind of our surrounding areas, even outside the boundaries, have had a lot of fuel reduction done due to pine beetle And then obviously within our area, wildfire is always a concern. So there's also been some dedicated fuel reduction projects near us. So there's one more interesting feature of the mountain that I want to ask you about. I was skiing, I want to say, well, the trail is called Mine Dumps, so it must have been there. So there was, there was, I was skiing along and I kind of found, I was lucky enough to be there on a powder day. So I was, you know, looking for fresh stuff and I, I skied into kind of some well, I didn't ski into them, but I encountered some kind of gates that said, basically, don't go here. You're going to fall into a mine. Talk a little bit about, about those features of the mountain and what was the mountain used for and what's down there? Yeah. So the Helena area was originally a mining town. Um, that's where Last Chance Gulch came out as gold mining and placer mining and all of that. And then it expanded into Marysville and across this area. Marysville had the Drum Lumen Mine, which is one of the largest underground gold mines in, I believe, the Western United States. It's closed now, has been for quite a while, but it's a very large mine. And then they moved up this mountain. And 
quite frankly, this mountain is honeycombed with underground gold mines. The last ones ceased operating in the early 90s. But there are shafts and drifts and there are mines kind of all over this place. Um, most of the shafts, we work with our state agencies and are able to fill them or put a cap over them. So most places you don't know. But there are several shafts that were just too large and they ended up being fenced off. Occasionally, we see a shaft open up. That's always a fun one when you're in the middle of winter and our patrol finds a new hole in the snow. So that's when you when you say Great Divide's not known very well and isn't well renowned, we've made national news for that before. Not sure that's what I want to make national news for, but <laughs> have you has anyone skied into one? No, no, we have never had anyone ski into them. And we we work pretty hard to keep close track of any movement that's going on. But yeah. yeah. Wow. It's, it's All right. What we want to be known for. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just talk about snowmaking for a minute here, Travis. Obviously you have a more built out system than a lot of your peer mountains because of that snowfall total. Just talk about your system as it is today and eventually what you would like to evolve it into. I'm, I'm especially curious if you have any water challenges. We hear a lot about water shortages out west. I'm not sure if that's something you're dealing with locally, if you have a good reliable source, but kind of what do you have and what's your potential? Yeah, so we have what I believe to be a phenomenal system. It's very manual, which matches kind of what we're looking for. And instead of investing in automated processes and those systems, we we invest in the infrastructure just to get snowmaking done. And that allows us to open up early and get solid coverage. Currently, we run about 200 gallons a minute. We can run six or so fan guns that are on a portable system. And then we also have multiple lance sticks across the lower mountain that we run at the same time. And we just maximize that snow usage. Water is our limiting factor. It's funny that you bring up mining. That is where the vast majority of our water comes from. It's an underwater aquifer, which works well for us since we're granite and hard rock. It's extremely clean water. Tests just as clean as our well water. So we don't have those concerns when you think of mining or something like that. But we, we can pump that aquifer down and then we have to wait for it to recharge before we move on. And that's one of the bigger things that we're working on right now is where we can acquire more water and then how to obtain additional water rights to act, to utilize that water once we find it. At that point in time, we want to move to upper mountain snowmaking and go from about 200 gallons a minute to somewhere around 600 gallons a minute and really cover that front side, our snow fields, HAL, Zs, Surprise, those core runs there on the front. Is there any water at the top of the mountain, a, a pond, or, or could you build a pond up there? So that has been one discussion. Currently, there is not. There is kind of a flat area up there that in the future we could build a pond, and then we'd install some form of a pipeline to fill the pond up and make snow out of there. So that is an option that we're looking at. All right, back down to the bottom of the mountain here. You mentioned parking is a limiting factor for you. You said you would like to potentially build another entrance. Would that be over by Rawhide? Would it be over by Wild West? Can I take us through this? What What do you think your options are for expanding parking and, and potentially having another base area? 
So within our existing base area, we're widening our upper level back parking lot. We have approval for that. And we actually have machines moving dirt right now, continuing to widen that. And that's been going on over the last few seasons. Our long-term right now is to build a road out the back of that upper level back parking lot up into our Huggins flat area. So it would come out very close by that Mid-Mountain Lodge. And that's got a large flat area up there that we would love to turn into long-term parking. And that would add a tremendous amount of parking to our mountain and update some options. What's neat about that is currently we have public access, especially for hunting on the north side on the wild on the wild west side of the mountain. And that utilizes a lot of our boomerang trail. There's a road that goes through there. So we can't open up boomerang until after hunting season, where if we get approval and get this new road built, we'd want to move the public access onto this road. And then everything within our boundary would be able to be open as we're able to make snow without impacting any sort of public access. I mean, I'm I'm a born and raised Montanan. I've been here, or my family's been here for multiple generations. And I am a big proponent to public access and open lands. So when I can see a project like this, where we as a ski area can gain without impacting any sort of public access, I think it's an awesome project. Yeah, everybody wins. What would that road look like? Would it have to be a, a switchbacky road? I know there's a little elevation gain. Would it be a relatively clean road up there? What do you what do you think it would take to get cars up, like a mass of cars up there? It actually maps out pretty well. There's already an existing, uh, well, existing is an interesting word. There was a road there at one point in time when we okay. go back to the mining era. There would be about one switchback in it is all, as they would kind of go across, switchbacks once, and then climbs up. And what's nice is at that point, we'd actually build it as a road with proper drainage. Currently, we see some erosion concerns and some issues with our boomerang trail because fundamentally roads and ski runs are just built differently. So we'd love to be able to seed that current area, get rid of all of our erosion concerns, and then build a road that's dedicated to be a road with proper drainage, proper grading, and all those things. So a few minutes ago, you mentioned potentially you would like to build a new lodge. I thought your lodge was Really cool, but definitely appreciate the need to continue to modernize and rethink. What are your What's your thinking long-term around the lodge? Is this about tearing down what's there and building something new? Are you thinking of a new structure kind of? What, what do you have in mind? What would you like to do with the base area? So what we're working on right now are plans for a new structure. And it would sit kind of where our existing locker rooms, um, when you walk up our base area, I'm sure you saw those three or four kind of structures on their own before you got to the lodge. And it would sit right where that footprint is. The big goal is obviously more seating. Right now on a busy day, our main lodge is quite full. But we also see issues with our rental shop. We have one of the largest, if not the largest, rental fleet of skis in Montana. Um, It's one thing that we pride ourselves on. But unfortunately, we don't have enough room to even store the skis right now. So we have Connex boxes and our Rental guys have to go out and get skis out of these 40-foot-long connexes and bring them in, and we have them stacked, and it's and it's just difficult. So we'd love to be able to expand that space along with adding some more retail operations and just changing that. 
And then eventually that older lodge would at least get scaled back. Um, there's a lot of history in it that we want to respect and try to find a way to make work. But by scaling it back, we can have a little bit more of a ski out area at the bottom of our Broadway run, which right now that Broadway run comes right into that deck pretty steep. And we have to use these slow gates and we have a lot of just risk that we have difficulty mitigating where if we're able to pull that back into a more of a traditional runout area, I think that would serve really well. And then that backyard area starts to connect to the main mountain without having to walk through the lodge or the bar and really just starts to tie everything together. Do you have any kind of timeline on that? Is, is it a, a matter of financing or is it just a matter of getting permits? Kind of what's your, what's your thinking and what would it take to make it happen? So right now we're still in design and engineering phases. We have our designs. We're working on structural engineering. At that point, financing is going to be our biggest thing. Um, I'm sure you've seen where you're at. Construction costs have climbed very, very steeply in the last few years. So we're watching closely to see what that does. Where I, a few years ago, we would have been looking at maybe a couple million dollar project. Now we're looking at an eight to $10 million. And that's that's a significant change in that project. So we're watching that closely to even determine what sort of funding we're going to need and how that would work. Unbelievable. Yeah. Not only the cost of materials, but the cost of just financing itself, right? Yep. Yeah. So, all right. All right, Travis, let's wrap up here today with a talk about passes. You have a really, really amazing spring season pass deal. And, and I believe you only run this for a week or two, 350 bucks. And that's an unlimited pass to Great Divide. Again, longest season on Montana. Also comes with three days at these reciprocal partners, which is some pretty heavy hitters. You have Whitefish, Snow King, Mount Spokane, Bogus Basin, Bohemia and Michigan's an interesting one. And then a trio of Colorado ski areas, Powderhorn, Ski Cooper, and Sunlight. Just talk about this spring pass deal, why you do it, and how important that is for your relationship with the community. Well, and that's just it, is we we always bring that back to being a community ski area. We understand that skiing is inherently an expensive sport. Oftentimes, it's difficult to get into. And when we talk our local community and our local families, it it's a financial burden to get into the sport. So we work very hard to maintain an affordable season pass so these families can experience some some winter recreation where if you don't do winter recreation in Montana, that is a, a very long, <laughs> cold winter where you're hanging out in your house. So we encourage right. figuring out what that recreation is and it, it works just well for us. We love our spring pass that sets our summer project budget, which is great. That's what allows us to do these ongoing fun projects and just really works out well for everyone on that. You know, looking long-term, obviously the cost of everything from materials to labor to energy is increasing. Do you think you're going to be able to hold the line in that $350 price, or do you think you're going to have to bring it up a little bit as we go on? When I'm looking at it right now, I think we're going to end up bringing it up a little bit. Um, we're doing everything we can to combat some inflation, but the big drivers are cost of labor to retain our talented employees, our talented staff, we're, we're having to pay more just like everyone else. And we're having to compete with local wages that we're seeing increase exponentially. 
so that's a, a big driver for us is is what we're going to have to do to maintain that. How important are those reciprocal days to your pass holders? I would think that the three days at Whitefish in particular would be attractive to your pass holders. How important are those to you and to your pass holders? It, it, it's very important. Whitefish is a phenomenal partner mountain for us. Um, and it works well for them also, which is what we love out of these reciprocal agreements. We have a lot of our season pass holders that'll go up to Whitefish possibly over Christmas or maybe spring break and enjoy a nice long weekend up there and have a great vacation. And then we see a lot of people from the Flathead Valley, Kalispell, Whitefish area coming down once again over Christmas break, our early season or our late spring, where a lot of those people have family here in Helena. They'll come down, enjoy a fun weekend of skiing when whitefish might not be open yet or might not be fully open. That works really well for us. Our other areas are great. I mean, as I started by saying, I grew up skiing all over the place, taking lots of ski vacations. So when we can offer our season pass holders these three-day long weekends spread anywhere from Wyoming to Colorado, you can go all the way over to Michigan. That'd be a fun one, or maybe spend some time over in Spokane. You, you can just really start to enjoy the sport and maybe you come back and you think Great Divide's doing amazing. We love that. Or maybe you fall in love with a mountain and go, wow, that was just a great time. We can't wait till we go back. It's just critical to the sport, bringing it back to skiing. It's supposed to be a simple sport. We don't care what you're wearing. We don't care how you're skiing as long as you're having fun. And if you have fun skiing these other areas, that's fantastic. So the reciprocal deals are really nice for the pass holders, and it's cool to have these relationships with the other areas. You know, as I look at Great Divide, it is a perfect candidate for the Indy Pass. It's family-owned. It's locally oriented. You have terrific terrain. Have you, and the benefit of it is that every time a skier visits on an Indy Pass, you would get a paycheck. So have you considered the Indy Pass, and is this something that you think that that you could bring into Great Divide at some point? Yeah, it's possible. And we have talked with them. We've looked at it. What we love about our program is its simplicity. And it, don't get me wrong, I love getting a paycheck anytime someone comes. There's there's a lot to that. But we have no exclusions on ours. And we work hard to all of our reciprocal agreements. We've talked with other areas before that just haven't worked out because they might not have parking on big weekends and they need a blackout date. We don't have blackout dates with any of our partners. So that way it just streamlines it for our season pass holders that if they want to go up to Whitefish, they know as long as Whitefish is open, they can. And there's there's no forms to fill out. There's no blackout dates. There's no exclusions. They don't have to worry about maybe doing two days at this area, but they get three days at this area. It's just clean and simple. And that's what we really love about our existing program. Would you like to grow that network over time, your reciprocal partners? Yeah. Yep. We would continue growing that. It, it's in kind of a methodical way is finding partners with that same outlook that are looking for simple programs without a lot of red tape and fine print, I'd say. All right, Travis, with that, I will let you go. I've taken enough of your time today. I know you're getting ready for a big family vacation. So I really appreciate it. And I wish you the best of luck as you continue to grow at Great Divide. Personally, I can't wait to come back. That place is a lot of fun. So good luck with everything you're doing and and have fun on that trip. 
Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it and can't wait to see you back here again. That's Travis Crawford, co-owner, president, and general manager of Great Divide Montana. That was just terrific, Travis. I really appreciate you. And I really appreciate all of you for listening. Do yourself a favor and work Great Divide into your next Western itinerary. It really is just such a fun mountain. I've got a ton more big mountain Western pods headed your way with conversations scheduled with the leaders of Keystone, Snowbird, North Star, Schweitzer, Mount Rose, Big Sky, and here's another funky little Montana indie that I booked the other day, the owner of Teton Pass. No, I did not misspeak. The place is not in Wyoming, and we are going to untangle that whole thing when that pod comes along in a few months. The very best way to get those episodes the moment they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter, threads, and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.